Back when I first started running a bar, there were a lot of questions I had about legislation, but I was too scared to go and ask Liquor and Gaming. And this is a place where you can come and say, look, is this right? Does this comply? Collectively, we've increased patronage, and now you can open up a small bar licence quite quickly with an interim licence. These are some of the benefits of being organised. Welcome to The Neon Grid. I'm your host, Michael Rodriguez. I'm often asked, what's the biggest impediment to unlocking the potential of the nighttime economy in New South Wales? My answer, collaboration. Bottom line for the 24-hour economy strategy and the work that my office has been set up to do is that we will live or die on our ability to coordinate the activities of New South Wales government, local councils all across the state, and industry. In the same way a scientist might conduct a laboratory experiment, I've been working with a bunch of fellow chemists for nearly a year now on a prototype for going out districts, our very own sandpit, so to speak, for the collaboration we need to deliver on the government's vision for Sydney. Chief amongst co-conspirators is today's guest, Carl Schlotthauer. Former model and Sydney small bar owner, Carl co-founded the Independent Bars Association for much the same reasons as I co-founded the NTIA, to coordinate industry and improve the operating conditions for businesses in the sector. Today we'll chat about his role in shaping Sydney through the work of the IBA, which for the main part has been behind the scenes, but we will also interrogate the workings of YCK Laneways, a hitherto unnamed area of Sydney that is home to some of our city's most loved and awarded small bars. YCK has really captured the imagination of decision makers in governments, councils across Sydney and industry leaders across the nation. It's also started to gain international recognition, having been nominated for the Best Nighttime Economy Initiative at the Music Cities Awards. Will it win? Well, win or not, it's already done a job because since inception, business in the area, absent lockdown, saw significant footfall and revenue growth. Punners love it. And that's the only test that really matters. Grab something cold, take a seat, or remain standing if you prefer, for my interview with small bar pioneer, Carl Schlotthauer. Carl Schlotthauer, mate, it's good to see you. And I've never seen you with a microphone in your hand, but I'm envisaging that at one point in time, I could, uh, you're on stage. Is that right? Yes, one point in time I was on stage. I met you, I think, when you were, I'm going to get this wrong, but the maybe the venue manager owner, something of Favela? Can you remember the, was it Favela? Oh, uh, yes. Yes. No, I was the marketing and functions director at Favela <laughs> in the cross. <laughs> Maybe wearing one of those hats. What are they called? Uh, I had an array of little good top hats. Yes. <laughs> so you're on stage before. What, as a DJ or frontman? No, well, not so much on stage at Favela. More the stage stuff was back in my thinner years, I like to call it, was <laughs> I was modeling for about 12, 15 years. Traded the stage for the catwalk. So hence Stitch? Hence pocket, hence button, nothing to do with your fashion background? Uh, I would like to think I'm that clever. We didn't <laughs> even see the synergies between them <laughs> until someone pointed it out when we opened up Stitch. And then obviously when we opened up Button, that was just for the fun of it. Great to have you on. As listeners might have worked out by now, we're reasonably well acquainted either through the industry, Independent Bars Association, a whole bunch of connections these days. We've covered some of your background, but fashion model come <laughs> leading luminary of the bar industry. I remember Pocket Bar, when I was at Time Out, picked up our Bar of the Year, if I recall rightly. Yeah, we got the People's Choice Award. People's Choice, yeah. So exciting to have you on. Just a bit about you yourself, like what, what took you into from fashion into opening up venues then? Well, funnily enough, I travelled all up and down the East Coast with modelling and often when I moved to a new city, I didn't know anyone. So I had this motto of find a bar that I like and I'll generally find people in there that are similar to me. 
And and that was really evident when I was in Melbourne. There was a little dive bar called Blue Bar, and we basically lived there for three or four nights a week. They didn't do anything too flash in terms of food and beverage, but it was just the way they made you feel and the experience you had there. And that's that's the whole thing that attracted me to opening up our own bar is like creating those memorable experiences. It's a, a bit geeky now, but I just must admit, just come off stage at Tales of the Cocktail. It's been a career highlight, actually. I've been meaning to speak at that. Unfortunately, I didn't go to New Orleans to do it, but at least I did it remotely. But I guess I mentioned that because uh, the era of uh, bars in Sydney, you sort of came up in the small bar movement, I guess. But it did go into that period of, I guess, what I describe as focus on cocktails and bartender expertise, I guess. Whereas it's interesting hearing how your bar came to be, which was no doubt quality drinks was part of it, but it also had that other element of, and probably the more bit that has a greater longevity, which is that thing of bringing people together who are like-minded or want a similar, similar sort of meet, meet people of a similar background. Yeah, correct. I think, I think that's what excites me the most now about Australia's bar industry is about people's take on hospitality, the experience they create and the environment they create for people to connect. Like you just got to look at some of the small bars popping up now. The product offering is quite small, but the experience you have there is unbelievable. Yeah. I think as experienced veterans of the industry, we've seen that change. And let's jump in there. You just mentioned small bars popping up. It's a pretty brutal time for anything popping up in terms of like new businesses like what's popping up that i should know about oh this is just some of the ones not not so much new businesses but like the guys from uh, stefano the stuff that he's starting to do now it's it's all about experience like you you go in there and i remember how i get treated more so than how what the food and drink taste tasted like if you know what i mean yeah, totally. So Stefano, where maybe Frank, maybe Sammy, Sammy Jr. And if you can remember the, have I got all? There's another one. Oh, there's, there's one in the hotel bar, but that escapes me. And me too. Oh, it's uh, Dean and Nancy's? Dean and Nancy's maybe. Anyway, but uh, I think the point there you're getting at is, is is the experience over the product, in a sense, or the experience is the product. Let's just use the opportunity. Part of this podcast is really about information exchange, and it'd be good just to, it's on the cusp of reopening at the moment, or the discussions around it anyway. Like, what's the vibe? What's going on? Speak, you know, for yourself, but also as in your capacity as president of the Independent Bars Association. The vibe's quite positive, to tell you the truth. Everyone's excited about reopening. And I think the the pent-up demand we're going to see very similar, if not stronger to, to what happened reopening from the first lockdown. We're going to see the regions and the outer suburbs of Sydney explode with people going out and the CBD might take a little bit longer. There's some concerns of around what it's going to look like a couple of weeks into reopening and, you know, with living with COVID. So it, what are the concerns then specifically, like a couple of weeks in? Let's interrogate that a bit further. So what's going to happen when undoubtedly transmission happens at your venue? Are are your staff going to have to isolate? Are you going to have to shut down the business for potentially two weeks because all your staff are isolating? Or those sort of things that that haven't been ironed out as of yet. So there's the known unknowns at the moment, which hopefully some clarity might be brought to those things in the coming weeks. And what about from a patron experience perspective and demand? Any concerns about that? You mentioned that the regions will have a slightly different rate of return to perhaps CBD, but what's going through your mind there? I think they're all eager to get out, to be honest. I think there might be a little bit of retraining of what going out is again and a bit of of behaviour training, but 
overall, everyone I've spoken to can't wait to get out and su- support all the businesses that have been shut down. It's sort of second round, isn't it? Like we had to go through a period of behavioural adjustment, both for venues and for patrons in terms of systems and processes for you and experience for us in terms of check-in, hand sanitising, etc., QR codes. Like, do you think that there will inevitably be different, you know, we're talking vaccine passes and these sorts of things. There'll be different processes potentially, but I guess we've been through it once in a sense. Do you agree? Yeah, I think the the check-in, sanitising, all that won't be a drama. I think there'll be some great door debates around the vaccine entry. Um, but I think that'll be the biggest learning curve like for all, everyone. You know me, I'm all about ideas. What do I reckon about this one? That we, we, we try and get mobile vaccination clinics into the <laughs> CBD. No, no, because like there'll be people that turn up at a venue and they're not vaccinated potentially, right? And uh, this is me never having worked in a venue. But it's like if you're not vaccinated, then the reaction's going to be, oh, you, you know, you suck, whatever, or I'm going to try and get to another venue. But if you're not vaccinated, hey, look, there's somewhere, somewhere, where, you, there's somewhere you can get vaccinated. Like, you know, and here's you go- a $20 drink voucher for when you're in two weeks when you're right to come back. Yeah, yeah, well, maybe. I don't know. I think there could be something in it, but maybe yeah, not. maybe. Like, Link it in with uh, Dine and Discover. Why not? Yeah, go and redeem. <laughs> yeah. But I like, I guess that's one, one thing to just touch on, hey, and I guess this will, this will date the podcast, but all the signs will be that, you know, we'll accelerate through the 80% and then, you know, you'll get to this sort of tail end component. And really what we want to do is make sure we, you know, it's a real minority at that end. If you're a venue operator or anyone who wants to see their city come back, you understand that vaccination potentially is pretty important to that process without stepping on the toes of people who have different ideological views on the subject matter. But yeah, I think that anything we can do to sort of see that vaccination rate rise is uh, a good thing. Yeah, 100% agree. It's interesting for me, having just come off tails actually, where I talked a lot about how to affect change in a city and you and I had a common experience when we united really to help get the independent bars up and then the Nighttime Industry Association up and both those organisations became a continuing part of the city infrastructure when it comes to going out as they helped to bring about indeed my my role in government in some ways, but I guess like, let's talk a little bit about the independent bars if we can for a while. Like what sort of motivated you to take a leadership role, which by the way, like has been, you know, very much needed and all credit to you. Just some of the struggles that I went through as being an, an owner operator, you quickly learn that you've got to be a mini expert at almost everything, council regulations, liquor license, noise regs, workplace laws, and these things change all the time. And there was no real body or an association that I could go to and ask for support. Like the AHA existed and that's for the pubs and hotels, et cetera, restaurants. But they didn't really understand the small bar sort of culture that was going through. And the more I spoke to other bar owners, they all thought that there should be something that existed. And that's sort of how the independent bars came about. But why you though? Like why not someone else? I was just bored. <laughs> Sorry, I was I was telling Mark Burris there. I was on his podcast and he was he just drilled me, man. It was pretty. He was like, why are you? Why not someone else? But like, I won't let you get away with that one. I think you were bored, but also I think that you'd reached a stage in your professional life that you saw a need that was bigger than yourself. If I put it to you that way, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And and there were challenges, and I was ready for the next challenge in my career. I think at that point we I had seven venues on the go. 
there's a wealth of knowledge in the noggin and I was ready to share that knowledge. And I thought that the association was a great way to do that. That must have been some three or four years ago, 2017, actually, I remember we had that conversation, Global Cities After Dark. I believe I had to chase you for about a year to get a meeting. (laughs) It's getting worse these days. But thinking about the journey of the Independent Bars Association, I think it's a very hard gig in terms of, for any number of reasons, without insulting half the bar industry in one go, but like, it's a disparate set of stakeholders, you know, small business, which means time available. I mean, I remember you very recently describing just that challenge you have trying to get in touch with people. You can't send an email and expect a response necessarily. How's the association tracking? Is membership growing? Like, why should people get involved? You know, where's your support come from? Yeah, so the the association is tracking quite well. We're, we're sitting at, last time I checked, like 120 plus members. And out of the, I think there's 200 small bar licenses in New South Wales at the moment. We're growing and through the pandemic, we're seeing that grow a little bit faster than what we normally would. Why people should join? Just just for knowledge sharing. And I think when I look back, when I first started running a bar, there were a lot of questions I had about legislation, but I was too scared to go and ask the police, too scared to go and ask liquor and gaming. And this is a place where you can come and say, look, this is how I'm doing it. Is this right? Does this comply? And then we can sort of advise around there. And I think that's where a lot of members get a lot of their benefit. And also collectively, we normally are experiencing the same pain points and then we can then go and advocate on behalf of all the members. And we've managed to get, you know, a a fair bit of change in the last, what, three or four years that we've been going. So it's been quite good. I'm reminded of David Brent in the office. The results speak for themselves, something like that. Like it, it, <laughs> It's been a, a remarkable turnaround in some ways, I think, in terms of the landscape being adjusted to recognise the value, importance and business nature of a small bar. Like I know there's a lot left to be done. Someone listening to this in five years, someone's going, what are they talking about? You know, but, but it was not an easy ask to actually get the organisation set up and also get it you know, really engaged with government both at city council level, but also at state government level. And for me nowadays, and speaking at Tales, I was trying to educate people globally about the importance of being organised, particularly in context of a pandemic, because it allows someone in my role to come to someone like you and get a very quick read on a situation or get advice that, generally speaking, representative of multiple interests beyond your own and therefore feed that back into the machine and it is a machine of epic size government and you know without that i i would sort of be having to make 20 or 30 phone calls across the sector to try and understand an issue that you might be able to refine for me in words of one syllable i guess you've explained to me what you see the the value for some of the potential members and members existing but from a government perspective and i think that yeah well now i'm in government i can say it hey like it's incredibly valuable just because you're trying to make decisions for a vast group of people and what, how can you base that, what, what do you base those decisions on? Mm. Yeah, well, before there were decisions being made about small bars without any consultation. So now the, that avenue now is there for them to reach out to us. And they do quite often, like some of the, some of the things that we've seen change with small bars since the Independent Bars Association has been around is, you know, the controversial miners into small bars, which... I don't see how that's so controversial, but takeaway cocktails, we can now do that post-pandemic. We've increased patronage from 60 persons up to 120, and now you can open up a small bar license quite quickly with an interim license. 
So th- these are some of the benefits of being organized. I was also thinking a little bit about, you know, some of the things that have continued to evolve from like the creation of the Independent Bars Association. And I really like what you said about earlier in this interview, people who are like-minded or seeking a similar experience. Like, I think that's something that resonates with me. We'll come on and talk about YCK in a second. But if you look at like the diversity of experiences that are almost cousins, like there's a sort of network of different but engaging spaces, personalities and entertainment offerings in the city, generally across bars, because I think that the personality of the owner tends to shine through those things in a way they, they can't be repressed. <laughs> yeah, I'd 100% agree. And I, and I think that's that's another great value of that because you get to see things from multiple different lenses. And by personality, I mean fashion sense in your case. But let's just uh, move on to YCK for a second. And it's it's a subject matter that's, I guess, dear to both of our hearts because of oh, the blood, sweat and tears and the effort, particularly in the context of a pandemic. And it's got like a lot of attention media-wise, government-wise, and, you know, it's, I guess, shaping a bit of thinking and questioning because I think that the everyone's going, what's the future? What is the future of going out, actually? Like, that's one thing I sit here thinking about. I've been thinking about it for the last 10 years, really. Like, let's chat about that. Like, just give us, for people who may not be familiar with YCK, why don't you kind of give us a bit of an overview? Yeah, so YCK is the acronym for York, Clarence and Kent Street. So in that little, I think it's a couple of blocks, there's probably about 20 or so small bars in there, 15 of which have joined YCK. And probably for the last, I don't know, five or six years, we've been talking about trying to define it as a district of small bars. So when people go out, they go, okay, I'm going to the rocks or I'm going to to the harbour, but now I'm going to YCK. And it never really took hold until the pandemic came along. And there's nothing like a good pandemic to light the fire under people's asses about trying to get people out and about. Let's focus on that for a second. In terms of lighting fires under people, there's two stakeholders here, right? Like there's the consumer, but also there's the venue owners themselves, I think. Would you agree with that? Yeah, 100%. And so what was it about the pandemic that brought these venue owners together? Like why now, why not before? Put it simply, cash. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me more. Tell me more. Uh, and I think we just all realized the CBD, it was down like 60% on revenue. So we needed to do something together to create a big bang to get people into the city and into our venues. And, and that couldn't be done by, you know, just one person flying the flag for themselves. So like on that analysis, and I've gone into my lawyer mode now, I'm just like, oh, you're on it. On that analysis, you would suggest that once the good times roll again, you can just disband YCK. Is that what you plan to do? No. There's big plans for YCK, big, big plans. Oh, well, well, why don't you tell me about them? Well, we've done the two festivals already. So we did the YCK block party, which ran for six weeks. And then we jumped in with the Sydney Solstice, and that was for two weeks. So now we're currently looking at creating an annual program where each quarter we would run a four-week festival where typically foot traffic and CBD visitation is down. And then there's also talks about slightly theming each of those. So basically we would have four, four week festivals per year. I guess like that's one benefit, hey, like in terms of balancing out audience or filling your, the lull period, which demand management or something, I'm sure that there's an economist listening here going, Rodriguez again, just 
making shit up. But like, let's go with there's that advantage. But in terms of, you know, YCK again from its first incarnation, the first festival attracted partnership money from City of Sydney, New South Wales State Government. And Bacardi, Amex. Yeah. And Fever Tree also came aboard, if I remember rightly. Like, yep, correct. Like, I suppose one of the other things that, through my lens, I'm looking at this thinking, well, depending on who you speak to, the hospitality sector as a whole has had challenges with its operating margin uh, for the last, you know, few years with rents and cost of labour and so on and so forth. And anything you can do to diversify revenue streams seems worth thinking about. And also anything you do to lower costs is worth thinking about. And thinking another forum, you and I are talking about someone had gone to a waste management company and tried to negotiate like a bulk waste disposal rate and hadn't got it up. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So yeah, if they separated out all of their waste, they could reduce their waste bill, but they have trouble getting a whole bunch of businesses in the area to get on board. And are you looking at things like that for YCK? I guess there's just the sheer challenge of, you know, lack of resources during a time like this and also people not necessarily being focused on a matter like that. But do you see there being future value in analysing and seeking opportunities like that? Oh, 100%. There's, there's also a great opportunity to look at technology and how we can connect all of those venues together for a better user experience. So let's talk about that for a second. So what, what, the, what, what might that look like? So one of your famous quotes is two clicks and that keeps people on the couch. One click for Uber Eats and one click for Netflix. So going out is becoming a lot more challenging and a lot harder. And given now, you know, in a pandemic or post-pandemic world, there's time limits on venues, there's lower capacity. Trying to get a place or have a whole night out is getting a little bit harder. So imagine you can go to a district that's all talking to each other through one sort of platform. You can go and book at multiple different venues, have that all sorted and your night sorted. That's the sort of stuff I'm looking at at the moment. I hadn't really thought about it necessarily in terms of the two clicks to stay in, how many does it take to go out conversation. Of course, I'm across that having come up with that brainwave and trumpeted it for a number of years. But what I hadn't thought about, and you just really sparked the electricity in my neon grid, is the thing about the bookings. And, you know, like the CBD in the return from lockdown, the first one, became like a military exercise with precision. I mean, my phone had never been busier in terms of, can you get me into these places, Mike? And I'm like, oh, even the Pope couldn't get you in here, I'm afraid. Like it was, it was quite hard because understandably our our sort of prized venues were you know friday saturday night like here's an anecdote for you i remember being in london once and don't ask me why but i was staying at the ritz and people had said oh the service at the ritz is amazing and i'd rung up at 10 p.m on a friday night to get a booking in the restaurant in london i can't remember which what it was at the time and And the desk almost started laughing at me, you know. <laughs> but to their credit, they came back in 30 minutes and said, so there's a place for 1 at 11.30 p.m. tonight. Will you go and take it? <laughs> I looked around the room. The other four guys, I'm like, well, probably not. But I guess the point I was making is that that time scheduling is going to become part of our COVID normal existence for a little bit at least, if not on an ongoing basis. And even if it wasn't for venues that are desirable, like with a pressured business model, it could be a potential game changer, I would have thought. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And with YCK, I guess like it's a collection of bars in the interim, but you know, you and I were talking and the, the 24-hour economy strategy really is about diversity of offering. And, and one thing that we recognise is that people go out for a variety of reasons. And in terms of that YCK area, are you sort of engaging with different like non F&B 
businesses to potentially join or what's going on? Yeah, starting to now. So the plan is to really not just concentrate on the nighttime, but also include daytime, small boutique retail, accommodation. So then you can really start to plan out what a visit might look like to YCK. And so that might be a hotel, it might be like a, you know, QVB, for example, but it could also be, um, as I will be needing, a haircut in good time. Because I think like there's a bunch of uh, barbershops in there, if I recall rightly. There's opportunity for like all business types to join. And that's sort of what really excites me about the next stage of YCK, of what falls out of those discussions. YCK is member funded then? Like you've incorporated as an association, like the Bars Association almost, but like for a district and it's people are paying fees or what's going on? Yeah, that's correct. So we've got a whole fee structure. Our website should be updated in a matter of days, weeks to start onboarding new members, but it is an association. It's such an interesting case study and like it reflects what goes on in the UK actually with what's called a business improvement district, which is a concept that a lot of people who are listening in our councils will be familiar with, which is, you know, where businesses go, you know what, actually, if we chip in a bit, it makes sense because we can develop a bit of scale, we can market the district, we can, you know, pay someone to actually help manage the show, as I think is really going to be the case in the next couple of years. Like, you know, government and city councils are going to be pretty engaged with the going out landscape because, you know, there's a vest that the tax base requires us to have the going out infrastructure, roads, rail, all this kind of stuff is partly what the taxpayers invested in. And if it's not being used, well, it's a big problem. So, you know, I think that the government benefits of being able to engage with district, you can look at YCK, you can look at London or the UK and you'll see the similarities. Carl, I want to just throw you a couple of questions as we round out. Here's a question for you. COVID-19 has thrown us all a lot of challenges, but also opportunities. What's one opportunity that excites you the most? Well, I think you touched on it before. Government are really invested in looking at districts and helping and making sure they work and looking at the nighttime economy. In my small lifetime of dealing with government, I have never seen them so open to looking at the opportunities that could potentially lay ahead. Well summarised and that is experience that predates the reversal of certain laws and so forth. So like, I think it's good for people to sort of understand that you've been a witness to change in the city and, you know, in like it is government strategy, actually, like the thing that I've been employed to deliver is to change Sydney's narrative and also make an exciting place for people to come live, work, play, and then ultimately invest to generate new industries of which are the going out economies. So You'll be familiar in the 24-hour economy strategy of the neon grid concept, which is, as I like to put it, how Sydney lights up telling different stories of different neighbourhoods at different times of day and night. Like, with reference to YCK, give us your top experience. Well, it'd have to be when I took my wife down to YCK. So she listens to all my far-stretched ideas and, you know, sort of just shrugs them off. We live up on the central coast, so she hadn't been out in the city for, I think, maybe three or four years. And I said, look, let me take you down there. We'll stay at a hotel in the district, and I'll take you to all the venues. And when we walked around and she got to visit all the basement bars and, you know, in the back alleys, and, you know, I got a little bit more preferential service than I guess maybe the normal punter would be. But just to see that sense of excitement and exploration of the city she was like i can't believe this shit never existed before i can't believe i've never seen this before this is amazing how come you didn't tell me and i, th- I think that what really excites me is like 
during YCK, seeing people walking around with their phones going, oh, this is where grandma's is. This is where this venue is. Like, that's pretty cool. And I mean, what a great way to finish on. Like the main message there is that it's a great city. Let's go out and explore it. And that I'm sure you'll appreciate YCK, other areas. Like, you know, the more people go out, the more people are prone to experience. But the note I'd like to finish this podcast on is uh, that your wife and my wife should get together as two long-suffering people who've had to listen to crazy ideas over a long (laughs) period of time. (laughs) Hey, Carl, it's been a pleasure having you on. And honestly, from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of like, you know, many people, thanks so much for your continued steadfast service to the going out sector. Your role has been really seminal in terms of taking the independent bars and, you know, really, really reshaping the city. And I think that if there's anyone in the industry that's listening, wants to think about how they can make an impact beyond their own souls and what they can do as an individual then looking up to you and looking at you know the movement that you've created both with the independent bars and YCK I think uh, they should look no further so uh, on that note thanks for being a guest on the Neon Grid podcast my pleasure to be here thanks Mike thanks for listening to the Neon Grid podcast I hope you enjoyed that episode to get involved with our efforts to reimagine Sydney's 24-hour economy Sign up to the Neon Grid newsletter. You'll find that on the Investment New South Wales website, which is at investment.nsw.gov.au. Or hit the link in the show notes. You can also follow me, your host, Michael Rodriguez, on LinkedIn. And as always, carpe noctum. <laughs>